I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Welcome to My Life in Books, a series of intimate conversations with some of the UK's best-loved writers. In each episode, The Telegraph's Laura Powell interviews a different author about their life, their secrets, and the three books that have most profoundly shaped them. We open with Louis de Bernier. Born in London in 1954, he published his first book in 1990 and has maintained a prolific output since, including two volumes of poetry, numerous works of short fiction, and eight novels. He's best known for Captain Corelli's Mandolin, a musical, richly layered love story set on a Greek island during the Second World War, which won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize for Best Novel in 1994 and was later made into a film with Nicolas Cage and Penelope Cruz. Laura met him at home in Norfolk, where he lives with his dog Monty, his cats Basil and Kamal, and his two children. Louis de Benier, welcome to the Telegraph Books podcast. Thank you very much. So we're here in your beautiful home today and it's sort of this lovely, gorgeous Georgian house with a big garden. Whereabouts in your house do you write? I write at the other end of the house from this, in, a, in an office which doubles as a library. And my, my children work in there as well. So we've got three little computers. They do their homework and I do my work. It's got one wall entirely lined with books. It's got a, a great big fireplace with, a, with more books on one side of that. It's the entrance to the room is um, got bookshelves, but it's actually those are lined with musical instruments. Um, I've got quite a lot of musical instruments scattered around in there, and, um, and I've usually often got my children loafing around in there as well. Because <laughs> once you said um, in an interview previously that you need to be in a, I think, a contemplative state before you start to write. Do you need to be in that zen-like state for the actual writing bit? No, you don't need to be in the zen-like state for writing. The strange mental state in which you write is something that happens to you anyway as you are writing. If, I, if I'm stuck for an idea and I'm not quite sure how to approach something, what I do is sit in this very armchair that, that I'm, I'm in now and and if you looked at me, you'd think I was asleep. But I'm I'm actually doing something which I think is probably lucid dreaming. Um, I'm letting images and, and sounds and smells and stuff come to me, and it's a state of semi consciousness really. But when I a bit like hypnotism, if you've ever been hypnotized, it's it's like a kind of self hypnotism. And and when I when I sort of wake up and stop feeling groggy, I just go off and, and get it all down on paper. It's a great way of solving problems. And uh, the dreams that you have at night are often really helpful as well. 
So I've also interviewed Sebastian Folks for this series of podcasts. Yes. Who I understand is a friend of yours, and he sort of let drop in the interview that he's also a friend of William Boyd. And it made me wonder, do you, is there sort of this community of, you know, great novelists, contemporary novelists who all sort of, you know, club together and go out for dinner or to the pub or for a game of cricket or something? I like Sebastian a lot, and I think he likes me, but I hardly ever see him. He, he, he doesn't leave London much. I obviously saw all of these people much more when I was still in London, but I left 18 years ago. Um, so do you don't feel part of a writer's community? I, I, it, it's more of a spiritual or virtual community than a physical one. But one of, the friend, one of the friends I've had ever since I started is Esther Freud. And one reason for that is that she's got a house in Walberswick, which is not far from here. Um, so yes, and I've, uh, Tibor Fisher is still a friend. I do have lots of friends back from that Best of Young British list in the 90s. But we're not, we're not a clique in the way that the, the, the Martin Amis, Rushdie and Julian Barnes generation, I think, were. I understand that you met, once met Rushdie in a party and he gave you some interesting advice. Well, he, he was extremely unpleasant. Although he tried not to be to begin with because he congratulated me on a novel he just read. And I said, oh, I'm trying to do something much more serious now, much more difficult. And he just looked down at me and said, that's your problem. Do you think it was all part of a caricature that he has, this sort of persona no, no, that he I lives think, by? I think sometimes he's charming and sometimes he's really not. That's actually something I was discussing um, earlier about how, you know, people can be absolutely lovely and charming. And then, you know, as soon as they've had a, a sniff of success, it turns some people, only a few, obviously not everyone, um, into quite difficult beasts. Is that your experience of people you've encountered? I, I th- yes, I, th- I, th- I think some, some, some people, obviously, it does go to their head and they, they, they become narcissistic and, um, you know, irritable and they, 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 de- they develop a certain automatic intellectual contempt for other people even when they don't know them. Mm. The assumption that the other person isn't as brilliant or interesting as you are, so why bother with them? Mm. You know, I think people do get like that. And how have you managed not to get like that? I you, cats. your cats. <laughs> your cats. Brilliant. Cats and kids. Also, also, I'm sort of, um, I'm slightly suspicious of my own success. What do you mean? I mean, um, I, I think that success is really to be judged by posterity, and it's not up to me or my contemporaries. There have been any number of people who were fantastically famous and successful in their own lifetime and are completely forgotten now. And when you come across them, it's, it's, it, 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 it inspires you to, to modesty, I think. We're also here today to discuss the three books that mean the most to you in life. And the first one is one that was quite meaningful when you were a young boy. Um, Can you describe your choice, please? Uh, This is a book called Moonfleet by John Mead Faulkner. And it came out in 1898. I loved it because it's a book that has everything in it that I think a child could like. You know, there's an orphan and his aunt is pious and he's not and he he's in love with a girl whose father would disapprove of him who's an evil magistrate and it involves wonderful things like skeletons in coffins that fall apart in the crypt of a church while barrels of smuggled booze you know <laughs> bang around the, down there in the water we're going to hear a reading now from moonfleet by faulkner The voices came nearer and there was a mingled sound as of men shouting to one another and gathering in from different places. It was from the clifftop that the voices came and thither Elzevir and I looked up and there too Maskew kept his eyes fixed and in a moment there were a score of men stood on the cliff's edge high above our heads. 
The sky behind them was pink, flushed with the keenest light of the young day, and they stood out against it, sharp cut and black as the silhouette of my mother that used to hang up by the parlour chimney. They were soldiers, and I knew the tall mitre caps of the 13th, and saw the shafts of light from the sunrise come flashing around their bodies and glance off the barrels of their matchlocks. I knew it all now. It was the posse who had lain in ambush. Elzevir saw it too, and then all shouted at once, "'Yield at the king's command. You are our prisoners,' calls the voice of one of those black silhouettes, far up on the cliff-top. "'We are lost,' cries Elzevir. "'It is the posse, but if we die, this traitor shall go before us.' And he makes towards Maskew to brain him with the pistol. "'Shoot, shoot, at the devil's name!' screams Maskew, "'or I am a dead man.' Then there came a flash of fire along the black line of silhouettes with a crackle like a near peal of thunder and a foot, foot, foot of bullets in the turf. And before Elzevir could get at him, Maskew had fallen over on the sward with a groan and with a little red hole in the middle of his forehead. Run for the cliffside, cried Elzevir to me. Get close in and they cannot touch thee. And he made for the chalk wall. But I had fallen on my knees like a bullock felled by a pole-axe and had a scorching pain in my left foot. Elzevir looked back. What, have they hit thee too? he said, and ran and picked me up like a child. And then there is another flash, and foot, foot, foot in the turf, but the shots find no billet this time, and we are lying close against the cliff, panting but safe. That was a reading from Louis de Benier's first book choice, Moonfleet. So moving on to your childhood, I'd like to talk about your younger years. You grew up in the 1950s and 60s in Surrey. And I understand that your parents um, both wrote as well, not as a profession, but your father was an excellent poet and you found some of your late mother's writing after she'd died. I'm just wondering what supper conversations were like at the dinner table with your parents. Was it all sort of book talk, you know, chats about Shakespeare and and Moonfleet? And... No, uh, I remember a lot of talk about the war and their, their wartime friends, the things that had happened. And that's one reason, I think, that I tend to write a lot about war. Of course, their parents had all been through the First World War. So it was a double dose of war anecdotes. My father liked to recite Shakespeare at Sunday lunch. <laughs> what was his favourite? Well, was, was, was he a King he, Lear he loved, he loved the noble stuff, like, you know, this, this above all under thine own self be true, and things, things like that. <laughs> And of course, I I had to memorise all of these passages when I was at school, you know, like Henry V's speech before the siege of Harfleur and that kind of thing. Did you enjoy uh, it or were you a bit embarrassed by your family's literary prowess? You know, because it's no, not no, cool no, when you're no, a teenage I enjoy, boy, I is it? I enjoyed it very much. And it, it, it was my mother, she, she wasn't wholly in favour of my father, but she greatly admired his ability as a poet. And so, she, she, in fact, her nickname for him was Pote. So, and she called him that. So, so in, it, it, the nice thing about that is, in, in my family, um, it was perfectly normal to want to be a writer or to write poetry. It, it wasn't considered a daft or irrelevant thing to do at all. And it sounds like a very happy household. Um, what, what, just paint me a picture of it, sort of how did you spend your days and your weekends and what did you like to play? It was, it was a mixture because my, my, my parents' marriage on the surface of it was absolutely perfect, but it wasn't under the surface. But but it was, it, it was in some ways quite idyllic. We had a great big, well, a, a medium sized large house in Surrey. Unfortunately, on a main road, so the cats kept running over, kept getting run over. But we each had our own room, for example, which many kids don't. 
we had quite a big garden. My mother was a very keen gardener, so the garden was beautiful. We had rose beds, vegetable patch. I did all the heavy work. My father mowed the lawn. You know, my sister sunbathed, and there were lots of there were lots of lots of kids who would come and go. We we turned our lawn into a grass tennis court, so that the family knew where the soggy patches were. So we always won. And you said on the surface that your parents' marriage was wonderful. Well, my father's still alive, so he's 94 now, and I, I don't really feel I can reveal secrets. But but you know, any any relationship that lasts for 50 or 60 years, it's not going to be paradise all the way through, is it? As we found in your novels. <laughs> a bit more on those later. <laughs> what about your school days? What was your experience of being a schoolboy? The first school that I remember was a, was a primary school called St Nicholas, which was on the top of the hill in Orpington, where we lived at the time. And I, I used to go to school with my hamster in my pocket. My, and what my, was he called? My, my, oh, because he was called Harry. When we came home, my little sister Susanna and I would put on our roller skates and we'd hurtle down the hill with her behind me, you know, crouching down. And the only way we could stop was by crashing into the garage doors. But my, my next school was um, a prep school in Kent, which was an absolute horror. It was a hellhole. Well, it was called Granham House in Birchington. It was a horrendous place. One of the headmasters was a pedophile who would always have his hands slipping up your shorts. And the other was was a sadist who who had himself been tortured by the Germans. He he had terrible wheels across his back where he'd been whipped, and he took it out on us. In what way? Uh, beating. He was a fantastically accurate and savage beater. He could put a row of six strikes, one above each other, on your naked backside. And so it, what that produced was a whole culture of bullying, both physical and emotional, in that school. Which I think, which I think, has had a very profound effect on me all my life. And the head teacher who put his hands at people's shorts, you mentioned, was that not sort of, you know, you didn't experience that presumably. No, but when you're little, yes, yeah. I did. When you're when you're little, you think that anything adults do is normal. That's how they get away with it. But and and, and back then, I think people thought it was less horrendous than they do now. Um, but then then I then I went to. Um, a school called uh, Bradfield, which is in Berkshire, it's it's um, it's a public school, in other words, a private one, and it, it's best known for putting on a play in Greek every four years, and they take the they take the play on tour in Greece. Yes, and uh, the education, funnily enough, wasn't quite as good, but but it was far far more civilized, and the, uh, there was no physical bullying at all. There was no physical savagery. There was a certain amount of emotional or psychological bullying went on. Looking back now at Grenham House and what you went through, has it had an impact in any way on your your life you're writing since, or is it something you've just sort of shut off and don't think about? No, it made me really, really hate bullies. And it, it had a perverse effect on me. When I got big enough, when I was one of the older boys, I started beating the shit out of the bullies. I remember I broke somebody's nose once. What did he do? Bled. He- no. <laughs> what had he done? <laughs> he, 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 was, he was picking on a little boy. There was, a, there was a real cult of bullying amongst the boys. In those days, it was often slapping across the face with the palm of the hand. I, I, th- I think the idea was that we were being toughened up to look after ourselves in the event of World War Three. I, I think my generation was being brought up as Spartan warriors. You know, we were expected to endure suffering and smile through it. It had a strange effect on me emotionally, all that, because... You would you would go to the school and on the first day you'd switch off emotionally because there was no choice. You had to switch off. You had to become cold and hard and unfeeling. Oh, I need, you had to anaesthetise yourself. And then on the first day of the school holidays, you were back in your mother's lap being cuddled and you had to try and switch over to being a little boy again. That must have been quite 
unsettling to have to make that switch. Yeah, it's only in retrospect that I've realised that what an unsettling effect it had. And I, I think it's, to some extent it spoiled my relationship with my mother because I blamed her rather than my dad. Did she know before she died? No. No, I... No. Um, we, we always did have a difficult relationship, but it was very deep and affectionate, you know, and she, she, she wanted me to be with her when she was dying. And did she see your success? Yes. That's good. She was very pleased about that. She, she was pleased, but she, she was a bit bitter about me having children when I was so old because she said they, they won't remember me. So afterwards you joined the army um, at 18 and you stayed there for four months and then you moved on and did many other wonderful things. Um, what was it that made you leave? And I was particularly interested in that because you have so many characters who are in the military in your novels. So I was wondering sort of what your four-month stint was like. My four-month stint, how can I put it? The army had paid my school fees, so I had to go in. It's because I foolishly applied for a scholarship when I was 15. It was a revised course, so they didn't know what they were doing really. They'd they'd cut their telescoped the course from three years to six months. You can't turn an 18-year-old into an officer in six months. But they failed with me. I I was too young. I didn't have any leadership qualities. Like many of my generation, I I suspected that I was actually a pacifist. um, The Northern Irish Troubles had blown up well and good, and I didn't... Soldiering then was going to Northern Ireland and doing crowd control, you know, with a shield and a baton. That wasn't my idea of soldiering. But what it left me with was this huge respect for people who actually can hack it in the military. It takes great strength of character and often fantastic physical endurance. I mean, equal to an Olympic athlete. Almost every soldier is fantastic, is, is, I would say, almost up to Olympic standard. I, I just couldn't keep up with that. <laughs> now, after that you went on and had some really interesting sounding jobs very yeah, varied yeah. you worked as a landscape gardener and mm. um, a mechanic a motorcycle messenger and a teacher but the one i'm most interested in and i'm not sure if this is even true is were you a cowboy i was i was a part-time cowboy because um i got after after making my a fiasco of the army i went out to colombia to work on a ranch a really huge ranch out in the countryside where there were quite a lot of kids who needed educating. The idea was that I should get them up to O-level standard in every subject. And uh, I couldn't do the maths, but the others I was fine. Um, but in the, in the afternoon, we, we had to work on the ranch. So I, I just worked on the ranch like everybody else. I, I had three horses, which was terrific fun. I have visions of John Wayne and a lasso. Is that the case I, or am I, I, I mistaken? Know how, I, knew, I know two ways of throwing a lasso, yes. Oh, really? How's that? Well, there's, there's, there's the kind you use in confined spaces, which is when you get a big loop in a stiff lariat and do it above your head so that it doesn't catch on the things around you. But for, for roping something that's running or that's some distance away, it's an underarm thing. Um, you make a very, very big loop in the rope and you calculate that by the time the rope has reached the animal, the loop is the right size. And then... When you moved back and you went to university and afterwards you ended up becoming a teacher in London, um, were you a good teacher? I, I've been several kinds of teacher. For, for, I got through Manchester and a few years afterwards as a landscape gardener, mainly building things in stone. Then I did teacher training. I had a year as a car mechanic in Stoke Newington in a dodgy Morris Minor garage. And then I did teacher training in Leicester when I was about 25 or 26. Did I spot so. a Morris Minor in your, um, yeah. in your garage? Yes, I've, I've, that's my first car. I've had it since I was 20. Does it still go? 
Yeah. Oh, fantastic. It's immaculate. And then, but then as soon as you ended up finding that you could make the same amount of money writing, you left to become a writer. I'm wondering, was that a realisation of a dream that you'd always wanted to be a writer or was that more sort of the next project, having had many other interesting careers before? No, I, I knew from about the age of 12 that I was going to be a writer. I was just waiting f- to, waiting for the, the, the cogs to start turning. We'll come to that in a minute. But first, let's turn to your second book that you've chosen today. Can you tell us what your choice is? This is connected with um, South America. It, it's um, A Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And um, when I got back from South America, I went to University of Manchester. And we're talking about Manchester in the 1970s. It was really depressing. Everything was filthy. Everything was broken. The people had a bad attitude. Everybody was on strike. Uh, the northerners were contemptuous of southerners like me. It was hell. And in my first year, I fell in love with a French lesbian, which made it even worse. And then, um, but my little sister rang me up and she said, I've, I've just read this incredible book and it's, it's Colombian and it's by somebody called Gabriel Garcia Marquez. <laughs> and of course, I, I bought it and read it and I was bowled over. I thought, well, you know, this is, this is writing. Pe- people of my generation were besotted with writers like Martin Amos who were writing sort of cool, misanthropic, cynical stuff about people being horrible to each other in cities. And... I, I, I felt no relationship to that kind of writing at all. Um, I grew up in the country with nice people. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but but this, this book took me straight back to the sort of wonderful insanity of Colombia. And from that time on until in my mid-30s, I read nobody but Latin Americans. So I, miss, I missed out on the 70s and early 80s because I was just reading all of these great Latin American writers like Mario, Mario Vargas Llosa and so on. Um, and b- because we are very like computers in that you tend to get out what you put in, my first three books were sort of, if you like, South American pastiche. We're going to hear a short reading now from that book. He had given Fermina Daza the letter a month before, and since then he had often broken his promise not to return to the little park but he'd been very careful not to be seen. Nothing had changed. The reading lesson under the trees ended at about two o'clock, when the city was waking from its siesta, and Fermin Adaza embroidered with her aunt until the day began to cool. Florentino Ariza did not wait for the aunt to go into the house as he crossed the street with a martial stride that allowed him to overcome the weakness in his knees. But he spoke to her aunt, not to Fermin Adaza. Please be so kind as to leave me alone for a moment with the young lady, he said. I have something important to tell her. What impertinence, her aunt said to him. There is nothing that has to do with her that I cannot hear. Then I will not say anything to her, he said. But I warn you that you will be responsible for the consequences. That was not the manner Escolastica Daza expected from the ideal sweetheart, but she stood up in alarm because for the first time she had the overwhelming impression that Florentino Ariza was speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So she went into the house to change needles and left the two young people alone under the almond trees in the doorway. In reality, Fermina Daza knew very little about this taciturn suitor who had appeared in her life like a winter swallow and whose name she would not even have known if it had not been for his signature on the letter. She had learned that he was the fatherless son of an unmarried woman who was hard-working and serious, but forever marked by the fiery stigma of her single youthful mistake. She had learned that he was not a messenger, as she had supposed, but a well-qualified assistant with a promising future, and she thought that he had delivered the telegram to her father only as a pretext for seeing her. 
This idea moved her. She also knew that he was one of the musicians in the choir, and although she never dared raise her eyes to look at him during Mass, she had the revelation one Sunday that while the other instruments played for everyone, the violin played for her alone. He was not the kind of man she would have chosen. His foundling's eyeglasses, his clerical garb, his mysterious resources had awakened in her a curiosity that was difficult to resist, but she had never imagined that curiosity was one of the many masks of love. That was a reading from Louis de Benier's second book choice, 100 Years of Solitude, by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So let's talk briefly about your novels. And um, I'd like to talk a bit about your fourth novel, Captain Coeli's Mandolin. And I'm sure you're probably rolling your eyes inwardly about that, because I can't imagine how many times you've been asked about that in the last 24 years. But how do you feel now still talking about it? Oh, I, I love it. I love the book. I've always have. I'm, I'm very pleased with it. It's bursting with energy and youthful humour and uh, and happiness and light. I mean, I, I although it's it's got some really horrible incidents in it, such as the massacre of the young Italian soldiers, I feel that it's a it has a luminous quality to it. And I mean, the, the reason for that is quite simply that I wrote it during the happiest period of my life. You know, I just I just quit teaching, which is one of my ambitions. I was I was playing golf two or three times a week with whoever I could find on Richmond Park Golf Course. And, you know, I, so I was having a lovely time. And I had, at that time, I had a really, really sweet girlfriend and I had the perfect cat. So I think it all came out the in my... ingredients. <laughs> it all came out in this novel, yeah. And it was, it was Caroline's idea to go to, to Catalonia in the first place because she was sick of driving around France in my Morris Minor. Is that really the happiest time or have there been equally happy periods since? Or is it, was that the pinnacle? That was the longest period of the longest period of happiness. You know, I had about four years of perfect happiness, which doesn't often happen to anyone, I don't think. That book, to say it did well, was an understatement. I mean, just to list some of the tremendous accolades, it was 240 weeks on the bestseller lists in the UK alone. Um, Hugh Grant was reading it in Notting Hill. Jeremy Paxman, who's, you know, notoriously hard to please, called it absolutely brilliant. And um, A.S. Byatt compared it to Charles Dickens. And well, you can't really get better than that, can you? What was, how did you feel at this time? Was there a moment when you realised that this was something big? Um, well, what did it for me was, was going from Earlsfield into Waterloo Station and going to a bookshop in Waterloo Station. There were just stacks and stacks of it, literally stacks. That must have been incredible. Every writer's dream. It was. It was absolutely delightful, yeah, yeah. You called J.K. Rowling once the loneliest person in the world. You said she must be the loneliest person in the world. Mm. Is that something you felt at that time then? No, I wasn't lonely because, because I had a cat. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, 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 I still had friends from before. You know, the friends from before count matter a lot because you know they're not fakes. I had, uh, obviously, my family who aren't fakes. Um the girlfriend I was with at the time, Caroline, who I mentioned, had been with me since my first novel was published when I was Mr. Nobody. So it wasn't, you know, I didn't feel lonely at all. The loneliness kind of came years later. At what point? I, th I think increasingly understanding that I, I wasn't really like other people and I wasn't going to find anyone who was like me anyway. Did not... Most writers feel that. They I mean, probably do. Like observers sort they of probably do. looking the outside. You probably feel like that if you're a great musician or whatever. You, you, you have a certain sort of solitude thr thrust upon you by, by there not being enough other people like you. But, but, but I must say, being, 
being on the um, on the on the grant of best of young British list in the nineteen nineties was a was a really big bonus because I realised that actually were lots of people like me, if, um, but they were just rather widely distributed. Going back to the sort of subject of success, you mentioned that you were living in a sort of small flat at the time. And as well as being a literary success, the book was also this great financial success. Did you manage to enjoy sort of the financial rewards? I was actually very sensible. My my editor was sort of surprised I didn't invest in a Lamborghini and move to somewhere posh, but uh, that wouldn't have been in character. I was I loved my Morris Minor. What what I was doing actually was saving up for the house I'm in now. So I I I, I bought this house with no mortgage. Uh, not having a mortgage is just it's a blessing from heaven. You mentioned once, if you've got money, if you've got fame, it's almost impossible to know who your friends are and who you should be really trusting of and what people want. Have you had actual experiences of people who have tried to get close to you for the wrong reasons? Yes, but oddly, often the real wrong reason is people, for example, who think they're in love, you, love with you when they're not. They're in love with you because of their idea of you. And, it, you know, that that that, that can be... a quite a problem or people or people expecting you to be relentlessly interesting and amusing just you know when actually half the time you're as dull as anyone else <laughs> <laughs> that happened i i think so yeah 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 so let's turn to your third book choice of the day tell me a little bit about why you chose it it's called from a low and quiet sea by donald ryan it's quite a short book and it's about three three very disparate characters he managed to link their stories together very cleverly at the end. And he writes about the Limerick, the rural working classes, really, in Limerick. If Thomas Hardy was Irish and living now in Limerick, he would be writing like that. And Thomas Hardy is the writer I think I admire the most. We're going to hear a short reading now from the book. He stopped on the short landing and watched her through the cracked door, shifting in her sheets to find the most comfortable way of lying. He could hear gunfire from the east, beyond the town, short of the front line, and he wondered if the shots were being fired in celebration or in anger or in tribute to some fallen warrior. He wondered if his daughter believed his lie, that the gunfire was the noise of a great machine that was being used to frighten birds away from crops. It was for the birds' own good, he had told her. They'd gorged themselves till they were sick if they were let. He could hear her whispering to herself, or to her teddies and her dolls, ranged along the bed's edge, questioning, Could that be true, what Daddy said? That trees can talk to other trees? It must be true, or else he wouldn't have told me. I don't know if I'll tell my friends. Maybe I'll just keep it for me and all of you, and we can think about it just ourselves and dream about it, maybe. Well, good night, babies. And she whispered each of their names in turn, and settled in the semi-dark, and there were only the sounds of the cicadas and her breaths, and in the far distance another series of crackling bursts, like dry leaves underfoot fragmenting to dust. And the memory stung him again, so sharply this time, that he almost sighed aloud, of how he had hoped and prayed to God that she would be born a boy. The moon was visible in the skylight above the landing, and the stairs were drenched in its sickly light, and he felt a sudden hatred for it, the dead thing that circled one-faced and tide-locked above the earth, feeling nothing. That was a reading from Louis de Bernier's third book choice, From a Low and Quiet Sea. And let's turn now to talk about your new book, So Much Life Left Over, which is an absolutely tremendous novel. I found it very hard to try and write a synopsis of this book 
because it's such a hard book to sum up because it's so epic. It's almost sort of Dickensian in its scope and ambition and all of these fascinating characters, but I'll try. Um, (laughs) So it follows a cast of characters at the end of the First World War up to the start of the Second World War. And it sort of follows illegitimate children, messy dalliances. And at the heart is this character, Daniel Pitt, who is a First World War flying ace. And he now runs a tea factory in what's now Sri Lanka with his wife, Rosie, to whom he's unhappily married. I'm just wondering, how would you sum it up? Because I'm interested in what your focus of the book is. It's part two of a family saga. So it's, it's a great many stories all interwoven with each other. Really, I've started in volume one with three families. But having, having said that, I'm hoping that people can read it independently and for, for that not to matter. The main aim, I suppose, is to move the story towards the end of volume three. <laughs> but but, but I, I, I was interested in how people who had been so busy and doing such important things in the First World War coped with the peace between the first and the second. What do you do when you've done something so important and so sort of exciting, but also so frightening? What happens afterwards? At the end of volume one, Daniel Pitt and his friend Fluke have a conversation about what they were supposed to do with so much life left over. Because they've both been expected, expecting to die. And really, that, that's book, it, that, this book is about um, what all of them are doing between the wars. And as usual with me, I'm really, I think, interested in the different kinds of love. You know, I, I realized a long time ago that it's not enough to write about romantic love. So a fair amount of this book is about the love between Daniel and his daughter, Esther, and so on. Um, and also, yeah. Daniel, I mean, you mentioned that it's difficult when people who've been sort of had a very strong purpose in the war come out through the end. I'm wondering, when you wrote about the breakdown of their marriage, was it difficult not to take a side of one of the two of them and to be completely fair to both characters? Because when I read it... I felt like as a novelist, you may be more sympathetic to Daniel just because of the way he was portrayed to the way that Rosie was portrayed, for example. Maybe that was just my own personal take. I think I am more sympathetic towards Daniel, Um, which in a way is a reaction to what happened in my own family where everybody sided with the grandmother character. You know, the the tale is based very, very loosely on what happened in my own family. My grandfather had progressively disappeared. Um... And so we only had my grandmother's side of things, and I'd, I'd always wondered what the other side might be. And I think, I think, um, and obviously, I, I, I am a man, and I, I know, I know, I probably understand Daniel's feelings better than Rosie's. But at the same time, uh, I think I do have a lot of sympathy and understanding for Rosie. Um, she's. I think the marriage doesn't go wrong for the reason you mentioned, but I'm actually glad that you've come up with a different version of why the marriage went wrong. I don't mean that's why it went wrong. It just seemed like a turning point. And they sort of went... Afterwards, she sort of went heavily into religion and... Well, she was always very religious. Yeah. She was always very religious. But that... She was sort of coming out of it, you know, but that that terrible shock of having a baby born with all its guts on the outside, I think just threw her back on it as the sort of default um, refuge. And you've mentioned your um, your grandparents and their impact, but your own sort of relationship with your partner um, ended uh, several years ago and she's the mother of your children. Did you put any of your own feelings into that when you were writing as well about the breakdown of the marriage? Only up to a point. Um, the, the, pro- the problem with Rosie and Daniel is that, is that they, they got married when she was on the rebound. And um, 
she, she was on the rebound and her, her fiancé had been killed in 1915. And so she wasn't really ready to marry Daniel in the first place. And it turned out that their personalities were too different for them to be able to get on properly. For example, she's very, very religious. And he's not. He thinks it's all rubbish. I, I have myself been very religious up to the age of 18, so I understand Rosie's point of view. You were brought up a devout Anglican? An Anglo-Catholic, I would say, is high Anglican. So I've, I've been, I understand religion very well because I have been there myself. You know, I had a sort of reverse conversion, having seen a fatal railway accident in South America. Oh gosh, what happened? Oh, a young, a young woman was fetching me a beer and she fell out between the carriages where there was no concertina. And she was ripped to shreds down one side, and she, she took about three hours to die. My goodness, and you and that, saw all of that? Yeah, well, we had to carry her in. She, she died on the train about two hours later. We were nowhere near hospital, and I just, thought, I just thought there's no order, there's no moral order. No God that I worship would allow this. Did you know her? So, no, she was a stranger, but she was chatting me up. How did you cope with that at the time, sort of? Uh, the only thing I could do when I got back to the ranch was try and write it up as a poem, which was absolutely dreadful, a really, really bad poem, and I, I've, I've still got it somewhere. It's never going to be published. But it was more of a philosophical revelation than anything. So anyway, Rosie, Rosie is very religious. Daniel thinks it's rubbish, although his best friend is a priest. But, he, but his best friend, Fairhead, actually has doubts himself. And there was nothing like that with me and my partner. I mean, we didn't have philosophical differences or anything. It was It was to do with the sort of bog-standard way that people mess up their relationships, that's all. <laughs> was it difficult, though? Because obviously it's, it must have been a very difficult time with you because it's, sort of, it's, it's been in the public domain that you um, fought for joint custody of your children. I mean, you've said in the past that you were suicidal at that time. Now, having... Well, because it had never occurred to me that... that it had, I don't know, maybe I was naive. It had never occurred to me that I wouldn't be considered an equal. You know, I, I, I work at home. I had done at least my half of the child in the child rearing don't want to go into too many details that big i don't want to slag her off in public you know she had reasons for what she did but she she did disappear for, for a couple of weeks and i should have applied for a court order but um when she came back and asked for the kids i i said okay if we have them half in half and then almost immediately i got a solicitor's letter saying i could have them every other weekend and the weekend would start on saturday morning and end on sunday at four it's family lawyers who are actually the you know, the, the evil in all of this stuff. If it wasn't for family lawyers, if we had a system like, for example, Muslims have where you go to an imam, it would, <laughs> it would, it would actually sort itself up so much more easily. But when she ran out of money, we sorted it all out in two sessions of mediation and now we have them equally and everything's fine. Do you think things are changing? I know this wasn't that long ago. Things but... are changing, yeah, but it seems to, it, it is changing terribly slowly. Um... And and one, one to be perfectly frank, one of the one of the troubles is that there are so many bad fathers who don't give a damn. You know, it spoils it for the rest of us. And that sort of comes through in your book a little bit because um, Daniel, the main character, has got a very close relationship with his daughter Esther, but in a way, he's kept apart from his son, partly yeah. by the mother. Is that something that you sort of? No, this is this is called parental alienation. And it happens a lot. It's when one parent deliberately turns the children against the other as part of the war. Um, this did not happen to me. Um, my ex, Kathy, never ever stooped to anything like that. Um, but but when I started started 
campaigning for you know a fairer deal for fathers I, this was one of the things i became aware of it was one of the things that was most hurtful and difficult for dads to deal with and so i decided to include it in the novel even though it hadn't hadn't happened to me at all now one other thing i wanted to ask you about the book is about sort of romance scenes now it's a book about love and daniel fathers many many illegitimate children but it's quite a pg book did you sort of shy away from sex scenes on purpose do you find them difficult to write I don't really like writing sex scenes because the the vocabulary is too is, is too small. It's you've got a choice of making it rather gross and anatomical or making it elaborately metaphorical so that it seems poetic and mystical. And I I don't really like either of those choices. And you know, Isabel Allende once said to me that she could never write a sex scene while her mother was still alive. And and I know what Isabel meant. But my mother is dead now, but I'm still frightened really of what she might be thinking. So I, I think I think writing sex scenes is fairly pointless. One last question before we come on to your reading. You finished this novel. What are you working on next? I'm I'm working on volume three of the trilogy, which I hope will end at about 1980. I've already written half of it, and I've got to I've written the ending already. So I'm working towards an epitaph. I've got a book of short stories out next year, and I've got a collection of poetry out this October. And there is at least one more novel I want to write as well about a dystopia. Um, Only one. Do you mean one novel in total, or just just one about a dystopia and many? Well, I've others? only thought of the next one, but 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 I have got I have got vague ideas for a story about people who want to go back to nature and find out how horrendous nature actually is. Um, Are you going to try that out firsthand? Well, I, I was told this a rather interesting story by an Irish girl who'd lived in Paris in the sixties, and there was this charismatic guy who persuaded them all to, to go back to nature and live in the woods, and of course it was just awful. Um, a complete fiasco, which ended in brutality rather like Lord of the Flies. So I thought that would make a terrific novel. I've started that, but not got anywhere yet. I mean, watch this space. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> so just to finish off, we'd love to hear you reading from So Much Life Left Over. Do you have a passage prepared? Uh, yeah, one, one of my characters, Ottilie, is terribly in love with Archie, but she has in the end to realise that she hasn't got a hope and he's just not suited to love anyway. So she starts going to um, lectures she thinks that would be a good way to meet somebody. And here she meets somebody. Ottilie knew it was time to go forth and re-establish herself in the world outside. And in the meantime, she was going to go to lectures and learn about all sorts of things that were of no intrinsic benefit to her. Her mind was still reeling from a talk about relativity two weeks before. She thought that she'd understood it at the time and now had no recollection at all beyond the bafflement. She had not told anyone about the lecture on Fabian Socialism because she knew that her mother would think it even worse than free love. As she was leaving the lecture in the early evening, a young man next to her slipped on the wet steps of the hall and fell backwards. She had noticed him earlier because of his rather striking profile. Thirty years old, she thought, officer class, probably served in the Navy. Receding hair, a bit too thin for his own good. Um, tennis player, I should think. I wonder what he does now. There was a general rush to raise the fallen man to his feet, during which he insisted volubly that he was perfectly all right and pleased don't anyone make a fuss, after which he was left standing face to face with Ottilie. She looked up at him with her big dark eyes. You're not all right, are you? He winced and said, No, no, perfectly all right, really and truly. Then why are you grimacing and holding your left wrist in your right hand like that? Well, it's just a bit painful, that's all. I use that hand to break my fall. On wet days you should wear rubber-soled shoes, said Ottilie. 
I didn't know it was going to be wet. Move your fingers, said Ottilie. Waggle them. I don't think I can. Nothing seems to be happening. You've broken your wrist, she said, removing the cashmere from her neck and throwing it round his shoulders. She caught the scent of his cologne, and he noticed the sweet aroma of freshly washed young woman's hair. Oh, what are you doing? I'm making a sling. Oh, gracious me, I'm sure I'm all right. Really, I don't need any help. I was a VAD in the war. You've broken your wrist, and now you're going to hospital to get it put in plaster. Are you certain about this? I mean, it's a lovely shawl. How will I get it back to you? I'm coming with you to the hospital to hand you over, and when I leave, I shall make sure I take it with me. Um, you might leave me your address so that I can forward it to you. And I do think I'd like to come and thank you in person. How are we going to get to the hospital? We'll hail a hansom cab, obviously. Oh, yes, stupid question. You're paying for it, though, she said. It's your fault. You're the one with the slippery leather soles. Of course. A week later, Frederick Rebaud, a civil servant from Madras, arrived at the Grampians with one arm in a sling and a bunch of twenty-four red roses tucked under the other. It was Ottilie who answered the door. I'll come to sweep you off your feet, he said. Excuse me for not removing my hat. I don't have enough available arms. What would you have done if it had been my mother? I would have given her one of these roses and taken advantage of her moment of confusion to ransack the house for you and a vase. Come in, she said. No need to ransack. I'll raise your hat for you. She lifted his hat a couple of inches and plopped it back down again so that the brim fell over his eyes. Mind the step. Don't trip up, she said. Thank you. That was Louis de Benier reading from his new novel, So Much Life Left Over. Louis de Benier, thank you very much for inviting us to your home and thank you very much for sharing your life in books. Oh, thank you for having me on your fabulous show. In our next episode, Laura is joined by the best-selling Irish novelist Marion Keyes for a conversation that touches on mental health, monogamy and the importance of taking time to write. You know, I take a long time to write my books and this is why. Because I want to get to the truth of the matter. So I wanted to write honestly about about when, you, when you're going to hurt somebody you love. That's Marion Keyes in the next instalment of My Life in Books. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a star rating or a review on iTunes. It helps other people to find the podcast. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.